Okay, today is, uh, I mentioned a little bit earlier, part two in, in the wrap-up session on Christ as priest. We've been looking at the offices of Christ, the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And you may remember that uh, Christ has executed all three offices, both in his estate of humiliation and his estate of exaltation. And his estate of humiliation was when he took on human flesh, uh, born of a virgin, um, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, and died, and was buried. And uh, his state of exaltation is, um, is his resurrection, his ascension, and his present session at the right hand of the Father. But Jesus exercises all of his offices, prophet, priest, and king, presently, just like he did on earth. And, uh, and so we're going to be looking at this in a continuation of where we, where we left off last time. So I'm going to pick up at page 10, just by way of a refresher on your notes. Uh, at the top third of the page, just to wrap up, there was an article by Mark Jones <clears throat> entitled, Does Jesus Still Sympathize with Sinners? And this is a very helpful reminder, I think, for all of us. Good Christology is not a matter only for theologians and pastors, but also for all of God's children in meditating upon the glories of Christ in heaven. We not only have hope for what we will one day experience, but we can also rejoice in the knowledge that our Savior is more compassionate to us now than we can ever be to ourselves. We can rejoice that his compassion to us is not mere sentiment, but a powerful compassion whereby he can supply us with his grace in our times of need, just as the Father supplied Christ with the Spirit in his time of need. There's some strong statements there that the compassion that Christ exercises toward us is deeper, greater than anything we could ever exercise toward ourselves. And the word compassion is, is a very powerful word. Uh, I mentioned this last time and probably repeat it again, but B.B. Warfield, the Princeton theologian, uh, wrote a wonderful book on the person and work of Christ. And in that book, he had a chapter called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And it's an, a sort of an epic chapter on that topic. Um, but in that uh, chapter, he came to the conclusion that if you had to isolate one aspect of the emotional life of our Lord Jesus Christ, both in his state of humiliation and exaltation that would characterize uh, his ministry toward us, the word compassion uh, would be that word. And B.B. Warfield was a very, very noted scholar, so he did not arrive at that conclusion lightly. He arrived at it through a robust examination of the scriptures. So we, we need to exercise these things and realize that, um, that the Lord Jesus, even now, even now, in a very real sense, in a very intimate sense, in a very personal way, uh, a deeper way, I think, than I, than I had realized before I studied this subject very well. Uh, it, it's, it's much more intimate than, than I think most of us realize. But uh, I'm moving down to this last section. It's uh, an excerpt from comments that Joel Beakey gave back in 2010 at a conference on the beauty and glory of Christ. And he was speaking uh, a matter of historical theology. He was dealing with a work by the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, and Thomas Goodwin wrote um, probably one of the finest books on the doctrine of Christ on this particular subject. 
the beautiful heart of Christ in heaven. I don't know how many of us have ever thought about the beautiful heart of Christ in heaven, but the thesis of Goodwin's work, and we'll unpack this, and it's, and it's soundly rooted in scripture, we'll, we'll unpack this as we go, was that just as Christ ministered in a very personal, very intimate, very compassionate way with his people here on earth, he continues to minister as priest to his people in a very personal, intimate way to us. Sometimes I think we say, wouldn't it have been great if we had been Mary and Martha and Peter and, and the others that had firsthand contact with the Lord Jesus? And indeed, that would have been a wonderful experience. But the reality is that we do have contact with Jesus. And we have personal contact with Jesus. And he's accessible to us. And he ministers to us every bit as real as he did with people on earth. His heart is just as affectionate towards his people as it was on earth. But the, the focus in Thomas Goodwin's book, and it's published by Banner of Truth, it's very affordable, it's, it's a wonderful book, um, The Heart of Christ uh, by Thomas Goodwin. Um, but he focuses on Hebrews 4.15, and so I'd like for you to turn to that passage in your copy of God's Word, uh, because we, we need to, to see this with, with our own eyes. But Hebrews 4.15 is really the thesis. And in your notes, you have the excerpt from Thomas Goodwin based on the King James. That was his Bible. The authorized version is the way that it's replicated here. But Hebrews 4.15, and I'm going to start with verse 14 and continue on to verse 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, there's a lot there if we, if we consider that. But verse 14 admonishes us, it, it, it exhorts us, it instructs us to hold fast our confession, our doctrine of Christ, what, what we know about the, the person of Christ. And you'll notice that it speaks of the fact that it's not a past tense. It doesn't say since we had a great high priest. We have a great high priest. This is a present reality. Today, now, we have a great high priest and this speaks of his exaltation. So I mentioned earlier that Christ exercises his office both in, in humiliation, his incarnation, his suffering, his experience on earth, but also in his exaltation. And this speaks of the fact that Jesus is presently our high priest in his state of exaltation. He has passed through the heavens. Jesus, and even his name, why, why is his name Jesus? Because he came to save his people from their sins. The Son of God. What are we told to do? Hold fast our profession, our confession, the doctrine of Christ. Verse 15 is a continuation of that thought. For there's a, 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 a he's, the author of Hebrews is expanding. Why is that so important that we hold fast our doctrine of Christ? Because we do not have. Not, I want you to notice the grammarians in the class here. There's a double negative here. And the author of Hebrews could easily have said, 
we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, but he doesn't say that. He says we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. And he chose that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's an emphatic form. He, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. It would be our nature to think that now that Jesus is exalted and he is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he is no longer with us physically, that there would be a distance between us and our high priest that would be an impediment to his serving as our high priest and able to understand and empathize. And the word that's used here is sympathize, and I'll I'll speak of that in just a moment, in all things, because he's been tempted in all things, in all things, as we are, as we are. There is no temptation that you can experience that Jesus cannot understand and cannot empathize with in all things and yet without sin. And there are some theological implications. The, the, the doctrine of impeccability, Jesus could not have sinned. The, the question is, could Jesus have sinned? And the answer is no, in the impeccability of Christ. So it would be natural for us to say that how can someone who could not have sinned understand and empathize, and the word that's used here is, is sympathize with us in all of our trials to the extent that we can, because we, we, we're not impeccable. We can and do daily sin. And the answer, in short, is that Jesus, we fail very quickly. When we are tempted, it doesn't take long for us to fail. So the, the, the magnitude of the temptations that we face pale in comparison to the temptations that Jesus personally faced. The word that's used for tempt is the same word that's used in Matthew 4 with the episode of Jesus being personally tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He'd been fasting for 40 days, and after that, the scripture says he was hungry. Understand, we need to recognize and appreciate the full humanity of Christ, full humanity of Christ. Here is Jesus, the God-man, but in his incarnation, after 40 days without food, Imagine his condition, personally accosted by Satan himself, not just another fallen angel, but Satan himself tempting the Lord Jesus Christ. In every instance, he, he did not succumb to that temptation, but conquered that temptation by resorting to Scripture, quoting it verbatim, and came out the victor in every instance. But Jesus was tempted to a degree that we will never personally encounter. We would fail in in an instant compared to what Jesus experienced. Satan pulled out no stops, and Jesus suffered temptation, again, to a degree that we cannot even understand. And so the the comment that is made here by the, the author of Hebrews, that he has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin, is a very powerful statement. That equips him to be our high priest who understands our, 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 our failings and our, our infirmities and our weaknesses and our temptations. And when Paul says that no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful who will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it also, Jesus understands exactly what that's all about. And through the Spirit of God whom he sent to indwell us, he does enable us to come out on top of temptation. The reality is we don't, frankly, as consistently avail ourselves of that as we should, but the reality is that there is no temptation 
that we experience as common man, and God is faithful. We are not, but God is faithful, and he does equip us. Do we fully avail ourselves of that equipping? No, we don't. If we're honest, we don't. We, we fail. We succumb way too quickly and way too often. But the reality is that Jesus understands. And this word sympathize is, it, it, sympatheo is, is the word that's used. And the King James, in, which is in your notes, it, it says, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's the way the King James render it. Cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's, that literally means to sympathize. So those are equivalent expressions. To sympathize means to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And it's, it's, it, what's really interesting is that this same word is only used a couple of times to sympathize. But in Hebrews 10, verse 34, the author of Hebrews says, You showed sympathy to the to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Now, think about that same word. And when the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.34 that you showed sympathy, same word as used in Hebrews 4.15, to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that those who identified with the prisoners entered into exactly the same life experience as those prisoners. They stepped right into the shoes of the prisoners. They suffered right along with the prisoners. They were exploited right along with the prisoners. They did not distance themselves. They stepped right into the shoes of those who were suffering. That's exactly the same word that is used here about our high priest who sympathizes with us in all our afflictions, all our infirmities, infirmities. He stepped into our life experience in a way that we will never really understand this side of heaven in the, in the fullest way, tempted, tested, tried beyond any measure that we can understand. So when we're tempted, you understand that we have a high priest who intercedes for us, who understands exactly, personally, everything that goes on. Does Jesus know what you're experiencing? He does. Back in Hebrews 4... There's a, a, in verse 13, I didn't read this earlier, but there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, the, the emphasis of that is the accountability that we have before Jesus Christ. But it's obvious when the scripture says there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Does Jesus understand what you're experiencing? The scripture says he does. The scripture says that everything that we experience is open and laid bare to his eyes. And the scripture goes on to say that he identifies. The scripture says that he understands, that he sympathizes, that he stands alongside us as our high priest. His passion is to see us succeed, to endure, to do well, to prosper as he would, as he would have us to, to live well by his strength. His, that's... It's his intercession for us. And so this was the thesis sentence, the, the verse, Hebrews 4.15, that, that gave rise to Thomas Goodwin's book on the beautiful heart of Christ in heaven. The heart of Christ in heaven is just as passionate for his people as the, as the heart of Christ on earth. It has not changed. It's glorified. His body is now glorified, but his heart is, is just as passionate for his people now and just as personal and just, just as, as profound for his people in heaven as it ever was on earth. 
Well, Goodwin, and this goes to the, to the notes, um, Goodwin recognized that sinful people might be put off by the words, a great high priest that passed into heavens. Now, he goes on to say it might be incumbent, and probably is, that we might think that the greatness of the exalted Christ might cause him to forget us. And he gives us an example. This is, this is from uh, Joel Beakey's message on this topic, actually. But he says, imagine a friend of yours, maybe someone that you went to high school with that was really the star of the class. And, and so that, that's, that friend of yours uh, goes to all the best schools. He gets a great job on Wall Street. He's, he's a luminary. He's, he's just doing tremendous. And you're back to kind of doing your thing here in, in town, and, and you haven't really got much stature. You're doing okay, but your, your best friend, he's, he's now in New York. He's on Wall Street, and he's making more money than you can possibly imagine, and he's moving with all the right people, etc. And you wondered, does he even remember me? I mean, it's, he's not even in my neighborhood anymore. And we, we haven't had a reunion in a while. And, and, I, and I, we haven't talked on the, you know, and I, does he even remember who I am? I mean, he's moving in entirely different circles now than he ever moved when I was with him. And then we maybe we look at Jesus that way. Is Jesus, he's distant from us now. He's exalted. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Does Jesus remember his people? And the answer is yes, he does. The answer is yes, he does. And and Goodwin said, we might think that if Christ remembered us in heaven, having cast off the frailties of his flesh, which he had here, and having clothed his human nature with so great a glory, he cannot now pity us as he did when he dwelt among us or be feelingly affected and touched with our miseries. Surely he has left, top of page 11, behind him all memories of weakness and pain. And the answer is that's not happened. Jesus has not forgotten us. Jesus has not distanced himself from us. He's just as intimately engaged in our lives as if he were personally right by our side on earth. His, his understanding. And, and Goodwin, Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, said this is a, a, a challenge, a, a great stone of stumbling is the way he describes it. Some might think Christ is absent from us on earth. Surely it would be better for us if we could talk with him, as Mary and Peter did on earth, he was so gentle with them, but now he's gone into a far country where he's put on glory and immortality. He sits as king at God's right hand in, in heaven. His human nature is aflame with glory. How can we boldly approach such a king? How can we expect him in exalted power and holiness to bear patiently with us when we are so weak, foolish, and sinful? I can understand that. I don't know if you can relate to that, that sentiment, but that, I can understand how someone would arrive at that and say, is Jesus is engaged in my life? I'm, 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 I'm pretty much a failure compared to what I, I, I should be. You know, I'm not living as, as obediently as I should be. Here, here's Jesus in heaven. He's a long way away, so to speak. And, and does he even remember who I am? And the answer is yes, he does. Yes, he does. He beholds everything that you do. And that should cause us to walk with in a very circumspect way, but it also should cause us to work in a very encouraged way. When I say circumspect, it should cause us to realize, as R.C. Sproul would often use the word, the Latin expression, quorum deo, before the face of God. Everything that we do is before the face of God. There are no secret sins. There's no private sins. Maybe it's secret or private in our own community, but it's not secret or private before the very face of God. So when we see Hebrews 14, that everything is open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do, there is that, that aspect that, yes, we are laid bare before the God of heaven and earth, but there is also the, the reality that Jesus knows what we're going through. 
we're not hidden from his sight. So that's, that should be an impulse to obedience, but it also should be a source of encouragement that Jesus is very, very familiar with whatever trial, whatever disappointment, whatever affliction, whatever sickness, whatever failure you experience, he knows exactly what you're doing personally. Only God can do that. I mean, I have trouble keeping up with what goes on with a handful of people, but Jesus is personally familiar with everything that happens on earth. Every one of his people, he knows exactly what's going on. And so, this, in the notes, this, this, this scripture talks about compassion. And the, the word compassion is one of those very powerful words. I mentioned earlier, B.B. Warfield spoke of that. But it's used in the, in, the, in the Gospels almost exclusively. In Matthew, it occurs five times and four times in Mark and three times and in Luke. And it's almost always used to describe Jesus. And what's interesting is in the, there's a, it's used in Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal son. And do you remember what the father's expression was toward this reprobate son who'd gone off and, and spent his inheritance that the father had given him before his time, and he'd spent it on all sorts of illicit activities, and he'd been living in a, in a pigsty, so to speak, and so now he was coming back hat in hand, hoping that that his father would find a way just to put him on the, on the workforce so he could have a job. Do you remember the word that's used for his father? His father had compassion for him. Compassion. Compassion means move to pity. It literally means that someone knows that the predicament that you're in, they understand the, 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 the trouble that you're in, and they're not just simply acknowledging that in, a, in a, an intellectual sense. They're not just aware of it. It moves their heart. It moves their heart to pity. It moves their heart to do something. It moves their heart not only to empathize, but to identify and to do something personal, to rectify that situation, and to step into the life of someone that's suffering and do something about it. That's the word that's used for Jesus, and that's the word that's used for the father in the parable of the, of the prodigal son. The father was moved with compassion. Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw people as like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus got angry, it was, it was almost always when he saw people being exploited by false teachers. It, it, he would see the Pharisees exploiting the people and, and, and taking advantage of them and leading them in a path that led to spiritual death and not to life. And that made Jesus angry. And he saw his people as sheep without a shepherd. He was, he was moved with compassion. His heart was moved to pity. Jesus looks upon the hearts of people who are being exploited spiritually, and he says, I, that, that touches my heart. I, I, I need to do something about that. I, it, it's, it, and that's why he would speak in Matthew 23 so harshly about the Pharisees, because they, they were speaking lies into the lives of people and, and moving them away from the truth and not toward the truth. But the scripture talks about infirmities. And uh, in the second paragraph on the bottom of page 11, the scripture, uh, this, uh, this note here says that our infirmities stir Christ's compassion. That's, that's from Hebrews 4.15. And the infirmities, um, it, it, it includes both, a couple of aspects. It, it does affect, uh, include our, our troubles, the afflictions, the disappointments, the struggles that we have, but it also includes our sins. 
And he arrives at that conclusion uh, by looking at Hebrews 5.2, where there is an identification of a high priest who understands. Uh, Hebrews 5, let me just read this in Hebrews 5, verse 1 and 2. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself is also beset with weakness. Now, that's speaking of the earthly high priest. And this is what an earthly high priest would do. They they would offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And the scripture says that, that he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. In the King James, it talked about one who was out of the way. And literally, when it says in, in Hebrews 5.2, misguided, it's someone who is off the beaten path. And it's, it's interesting that this same word is used in Matthew 18 about those who have, um, the, the sheep. You remember the, the, the instance where there's 100 sheep and 99 are still in the fold and one of them is lost? Do you remember what the, the, the scripture says? What did the shepherd do? He left the 99, and what did he do? He went after the one. We have a God who is a pursuing God, a God whose heart moves towards those who are out of the way, a God whose heart is moved towards those who have left the path. That's his nature, is to restore, to restore. Not to leave them, not to abandon the sheep, but to, to restore them. That's why when we looked at these I am statements, the, the, the good shepherd, he, he lays down his life for the sheep. He goes after his people. No one can snatch them, Jesus says, out of my hand. No one. Because he bought them with his own blood. Do we ever doubt that Jesus cares for, the, for us when, when he paid for us with his own blood? When he paid for our own sins personally on our behalf? Does Jesus care for us? Yes, yes, he does. He purchased us. We are his. It, it, Jesus personally paid for your sins. And he knew exactly what he was paying for. That's why in the garden he struggled. And, and he says, if, the, if it be thy will, take this cup from me, but not, not my will, but thy will be done. That, that was, he was praying in his humanity, but recognizing that he had a mission. And his mission was to purchase those whom the Father had given to him. And he, he did not fail. It, it, Jesus did exactly what the Father had sent him to do. And, and Jesus did that. Hebrews 12 talks, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus did that looking forward with joy to procuring lost sinners who, who he loved personally, and he, and he took on each of our sins. And so that, this is the one who is, can understand our infirmities because he loves us more than I think we ever realized. Even our foolishness and sinful choices awaken Christ's compassion. This last comment, uh, page 11, Thomas Goodwin drives home his point with a bold comparison. He, he, he writes to believers, your very sins move him to pity more than anger. Now, stop there. That, that might strike you as an odd statement. But he, he explains this. He says, even as the heart of a father to a child that has some loathsome disease or as one to as a member of his body that has leprosy, he hates not the member for it is his flesh but the disease, and that provokes him to pity. 
the part affected the more. If your child becomes very sick, you don't, you don't kick the child out, you weep with the child and you tend to his needs. Christ responds to our sins with compassion despite his abhorrence of them. Think about that. When, when Jesus looks at us and we are struggling with sin, he hates the sin, but he is moved with pity towards those who are out of the way. He does. Because he, he is a restoring God. He is a restoring Savior. And he knows, and, and the purpose is everything that we do, we're ultimately being conformed to the image of Christ. And so when we are in sin, when we're struggling, when we're even in a backslidden state, the, the heart of our great high priest, our, our shepherd, is, is one of pity for us. He hates the sin. He does. We cannot compromise that, nor should we. He hates the sin, but he pities the sinner. He's a child. He doesn't disparage his own children. He doesn't disenfranchise his own children. He's bought us. He will not say, they don't belong to me. I'm ashamed of them. He's not ashamed of us. He hates the sin, but, it, but he, he, he will never disparage his own children. He pities the, the, those of us who are in sin. And he's not angry with us. He was, when I say he's not angry with us, the, the anger of, of the Father was expiated, propitiated at the cross. Does, does, does the Father discipline us? Of course he does. He disciplines us out of love. He disciplines us perfectly. He doesn't discipline us to punish us. Punishment took place at, 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 at the cross. When Jesus said to Telestai, that, that, was, that was punishment being satisfied. That was, that was God's judicial punishment being fully satisfied. When we're being disciplined, God is not punishing us. He's chastening us, and sometimes it's really powerful. Sometimes it's very painful. Sometimes it takes a while to get our attention. But I, I can tell you, I often will say to God, thank you that you are so patient with me. You have a very slow learner here, and that's true. I, I'm not being self-effacing. I, I really mean that. I, I, I often will say to God, thank you that you are so patient with me. And he is, and he's patient with you too. He endures each of you, you know, out of love, and he's, he's long-suffering. It's his nature, and I'm dwelling on this because when we look at him as our high priest, this is his current ministry of high priest is to intercede for us. And, and so I'll, I'll unpack that in just a moment as well. But let me just go ahead and jump there. Uh, go, go, to, um, go to John 13. This is the instance, it leads to the upper room discourse. This is right before Jesus went to the cross. Right before Jesus went to the cross. And um, so Jesus knowing that, in verse 3, that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, he got up from supper and laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. And you know what happened. He, he poured water into the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So Simon said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. 
And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And all, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, Not all of you are clean. Now, to preface this in John 13, in the opening verse of that chapter, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus is showing his people on earth his heart in a very real way, and his heart has not changed. When he took this towel and, and, he, and he washed their feet, he was washing their feet, but he was not bathing them all of it. Do you know the difference between that? He said to Peter, you're clean, but not all of you. Not all of them were believers. Judas was not a believer. Peter was a believer. When, why did they wash the feet? They washed their feet because they lived in, in a world where they would take open-toed sandals and they'd walk through dusty, dirty streets and, and full of all sorts of trash and they'd come in. And a servant would, would wash the feet because their feet had been touched by the world. And that's, that's the metaphor that's being used. You've been touched by the world. And, and I, you're forgiven, you're, you're, you're judicially clean before God, but you need to be washed up. You, you need to be clean. And, and so Peter didn't understand that, but, but Jesus was saying to him, all you really need is, is for that part of the world that has made you dusty and dirty and defiled your feet, that part needs to be clean. Now, think about what takes place in 1 John 1, 9. And I can't tell you how often I've read this, but 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why does it say that to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? When Jesus was washing Peter's feet, he was cleaning his feet. And when, when we have 1 John 1, 9, we, we know that our sins are forgiven. How do we know that our sins are forgiven? Because on, Jesus, on the cross, Jesus said to tell us die, it's paid in full, right? So we, we, we know that we will never be apart from, from God because our sins have been completely propitiated, completely forgiven. So when the scripture says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, it's, it's the same thought. It, it's the same thought. He's, he's literally, I'm not saying he's washing our feet, but he's restoring communion with us, just like he did with Peter. Understand that Peter, within hours of this episode in John 13, betrayed his master. He betrayed his master. And what did Jesus do for Peter? He restored him. He asked him, Peter, do you love me? And he asked him that question three times. And Peter, you know, the, the, this back and forth discussion, yes. And what happened? Peter was restored. Peter was cleansed. And what took place in that room, that upper room, when Jesus washed his feet was a picture of Jesus. Peter, you need communion with me to be restored. And I'm going to do what's necessary to clean you up. And the scripture says in 1 John 1, 9, that when we confess our sins, what, is, what does God do? He restores us. He cleans our feet. He washes us, just like he did with Peter when he washed his feet. And he does everything that's necessary to restore us. That's the nature of our Savior, is he's always cleaning us up. He's always restoring us to fellowship so that we can have communion with him, so that we don't have to be distant from him. That's the nature of our priest in heaven. He not only knows that we fail, 
And he not only knows that he's done everything personally that's required to, to satisfy the wrath of the Father, the justice of the Father, he's cleansed us with his own, he's, he's clothed us with his own righteousness, but he cleans us up. And he, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us, to clean us up from all unrighteousness. That's what he does. And that's, that's the nature, and that's why the author of Hebrews says, hold fast your profession. Because you have the promises of Christ, you, you, the character of Christ. Hold fast, because you, this is the high priest that you have. So look over to page 13. And I'm just going to, to go to the middle of the page. Jesus said in John 14 to 16 that he would ascend to heaven to secure our happiness and prepare a place for us. And he would return like a bridegroom to bring us to our eternal home. Now, John 14 is, is a picture of a Jewish wedding. He's going to, to prepare a place for us. And, and there's, a, there's a time, what would happen is the, the, the groom would go off and he would prepare and there would be a, a beckoning for the, the bride and, and they'd have this big procession and then, and then they would be restored together. They would celebrate their wedding together. And John 14 really hearkens to the picture of a Jewish wedding. Well, and what kind of a relationship does a groom have with his bride? One of complete affection and, and care and love. That's the picture that Jesus is using for us in John 14. And we, we should never forget that we're his bride. We should never forget that, 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 that the, the metaphor that's being used here for us as his people is we are the bride of Christ. We're not just friends of Christ. We're not just those who've been bought by him. We're not only those who've been forgiven. We're his bride. And he's going to prepare a place for us so that he can joyfully have us with himself. And so Goodwin wrote, third paragraph at the bottom, the Puritan, it's all rooted in Scripture. It's as if Jesus has said, the truth is, I cannot live without you. I shall never be quiet till I have you where I am so that we may never part again. That's the reason of it. Heaven shall not hold me, nor my Father's company, if I have not you with me. My heart is set upon you, and if I have any glory, you shall have part of it. Now, that sounds almost too, too good to be true, doesn't it? it? But it is true. It's absolutely true. When Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he, he, he means that it's personally, and, and you will be there. And he, he will not be satisfied until you are there. And it's a personal place, and it's a place that he's purchased, and it's a place that he's procured out of love for you, his child. And his purposes will not be satisfied until you're there. And, and that's the kind of affection that our Savior has towards us. It, this sounds a little too mushy, but it's, it's not. It, this is exactly the affection that our, our Savior has. Consider the purposes of the triune God in redeeming a people for himself. In eternity past, the Father and the Son and the Spirit entered into an undertaking to save lost sinners, hopeless sinners who were not seeking anything except to hate God. That's our nature is to hate God. And the Father sent his Son so that the Son could do everything that was required so that lost sinners, so that lost reprobate sinners would, would be purchased by his very Son at great expense, infinite expense, and Jesus will not be satisfied until he's purchased and brought home every single one of the people that he died for. Heaven is not complete until you're there. That's exactly true. 
the purpose of the, of the, of the Lord Jesus is, is heaven will not be complete until you're joined with him. Now you're here on earth, but the, the time will come. And we should look at this. When God takes home a, a saint, all that's taking place is Jesus is getting his prayer answered that they would be with me where I am. That's exactly what's taking place. And that's how we have to look at things. When we, we, we mourn for those who we, we have left, but those who are in Christ, the comfort that we have is that Jesus is saying, this is an answer to my prayer that they would be with me where I am. And that's our Savior. That's, what, that's how he loves us. Meanwhile, Christ has promised to pray for us in heaven and to send answers like love letters from a bridegroom to his beloved. That's how much Jesus loves us. Now, there's four applications in the time that remains on page 14. Number one, Christ's heart of compassion affords us the strongest encouragements against sin. We know that Christ is not at rest in his heart until our sins are removed. Those sins move him more to pity than to anger, even though he hates them, the sins. So it's an encouragement to live rightly before him, to hate sin, to seek to honor the Savior. Two, whatever trial, temptation, or misery we may suffer, we know that Christ has endured it and that his heart moves to relieve us in our distress. We went through that earlier. Third, the thought of how much we grieve Christ's heart by sin and disobedience is the strongest incentive we have against sinning. We can approach obedience from a legal perspective, like I, I, I don't want to do this because it's breaking the law, and that's true, but, and we should hate sin, and we should avoid sin, and we should do everything that we can to, to live rightly before God because we, we want to live a, a life that honors God, but we really should be seeking to be motivated out of a filial love, out of a love for God. I, I want to please the one who's died for me. I, I want to please the one who's purchased a place in heaven for me. Look at what he sacrificed for me. Look at his love for me. I want to please my Savior. I, I want to do what I can. It's, 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 it's like a child that, that obeys his father begrudgingly and a, and a child who says, I love my dad so much I never want to do anything to disappoint him. There's a world of difference between those types of obedience, if you, if you think about it. And it's the latter. That's really what Goodwin is saying, is, is may the love of Christ move us to, to say, I never want to disappoint the one who loved me so much and gave himself for me. And then fourth, in all our miseries and distresses, though every human comforter fails, we know that we have a friend who will help, help us, pity us, and, and succor us or support us, Christ in heaven. And so just to close, Goodwin writes, what is it to have Christ dwell in the heart by faith? That's, that's really when I prayed at the beginning that Christ would, would dwell in our hearts by faith because that's what Paul says. If then you've been raised up with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is. And it's to have Christ continually in one's eye, a, a habitual sight of him. As people live and walk in the light of the sun, we must learn to live and walk in the light of God's sun, which really goes back to the way we began this series on Christology. Why do we study the doctrine of Christ? We don't do it simply from an academic perspective or an intellectual perspective. It's to fuel our meditation on Christ. It's so that we can worship him and serve him more fully. It's so that we can have a habitual sight of Christ. It's so that we can meditate upon him accurately, honestly, faithfully to the scripture. That's why we study Christology, so that we can have a habitual sight of Christ. 
And so that when we are seeking to do what Paul has instructed us to do, to set our minds on things above, we're not setting our minds on some type of a fiction, some type of an imagination that's on our mind. We're setting our minds on the, on the God, on the, on the Lord Jesus Christ, who has revealed himself to us in Scripture so that we can worship him and meditate upon him rightly. And just in closing, I just am, am so mindful of a hymn that you know. And Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Jesus, what a strength for weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing, he, my strength, my victory wins. This is all about the priestly ministry of Christ. Jesus, what a help in sorrow. While the billows o'er me roll, even when my heart is breaking, he, my comfort, helps my soul. Jesus, I do now receive him. And I used to sing this in our church we used to attend. It would be, we would change it to, I do now receive you. It would be a personal statement that we would make. More than all, in him I find. He has granted me forgiveness. I am his and he is mine. That's really, this this hymn, it's a familiar one. And so we, we have to say, hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. That's all about the priestly ministry of Christ, his presently, his present priestly ministry to his beloved children. That is, so when you sing that hymn at some point or you meditate on that hymn, that's all about what Jesus is doing for you now as, as your high priest in heaven, loving you, supporting you, praying for you, doing everything that you need because he loves you, because he can't wait to have you home and be with him. So have a habitual side of Christ. Meditate upon Jesus, the, the one who loved you, the one who gave himself for you. Father, we come.